0: Well, I, I have to confess to you, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen this morning uh, in terms of the next uh, little while. I've, uh, as always, prepared myself, I always do that. But there are some weeks that you just don't feel it coming together. And I've got to say, the last few weeks uh, have been like that for me. And I don't exactly know what's going on. Um, certainly in the evening, I've felt the freedom just to make it up as I go along. But we're coming into a vision series and it feels important to be crystal. I want you to be really clear on what we're about, where we're going and where we're headed. Um, And I don't quite know how to um, honour what I sense God's saying, which a lot of which I think Will has just said, whilst also honouring the fact that we do need to know where we're headed. So we'll see what happens, I suppose, won't we? Uh, the reading this morning, Exodus thirteen, will be really important, and hopefully I'll say some things about that. But I also think the Psalm one hundred and twenty-seven thing is really, really important for us today. I'm not sure quite how they come together. Um, on the way to a uh, focus, which is our sort of church uh, weekend or week away, we join with a load of other churches, and on the way there, um, Amy and I sort of were in a rush to leave. I had a meeting. At the campsite at 2:30 p.m., and it was with um, Reverend Nicky Gumble, uh, last week of this parish, uh, who was here with us. and And that's a big meeting, folks. In case you're wondering, that was something that I wanted to be on time for. And so I was particularly keen that we left on time. So I was sort of, as I like to do bossing everyone else around, not lifting a finger actually to fix it, but just bossing people around, hey, go and get this, go and do that, and eventually, because my wife is probably the most gracious person on the planet, uh, we managed to leave on time, and she didn't, hadn't sort of taken my head off. Anyway, I, I had a very small remit, I had a very small set of responsibilities, and, and, and really just one, <laughs> and that was Driving. And, um, and that includes satellite navigation, uh, which I know in the old days, we used to use maps. I, I grew up in a world of maps, um, but now we don't do that. We just punch something into our phones. And I didn't really have the time, or at least I didn't take the time, to figure out exactly where we were headed. Um, but I did remember what I thought was the location, the destination, it was, a, it was a place, it began with S, I forget it now. But it just came to my imagination, and I thought, I trust my imagination. My imagination has never failed me yet. I believe that is the place, and so faithfully I punched it into my phone. And everything was going well. We were on the M1, which, uh, and we were going south. And I thought, faultless, I've obviously remembered correctly. I've obviously done this right. And we continued on our journey, and, and it was... I, I didn't think anything else of it. I was, I was intending fully to change the destination uh, to a particular postcode. But I thought, well, it'll get us there. We'll see the signs. And I was, I was given confidence by the fact we were heading south. And I just then began to relax and enjoy it. It, you know, it was clear that I was gonna, we were going to arrive hours, with hours to spare. So I felt very confident about everything that was going on. Uh, I started to feel slightly less confident when it took us off the motorway around Guildford. Now, Bearing in mind we were going to Dorset, I hadn't expected to sort of be on the A3 something or other around Guildford, going sort of more and more country uh, as we went. And it was then, after a little while, that uh, I decided it was time to sort of consult the literature we'd been handed and to find out if the destination that I'd remembered was indeed the destination, the correct destination. And of course, it turned out it wasn't. I'd completely imagined an area, which was, in fact, around Guildford. (laughs) And there was another place around Dorset where we were supposed to be going. So I did did what you do. I repented. And what I learned through this story, the first thing I learned, a few lessons, the first one was that the destination matters a lot. If you want to go somewhere, it really matters that you're reasonably accurate on where you're headed. And what I want to talk about this uh, this morning, what we want to talk about for these next few weeks, are really the destination, where it where it is as a church we feel called to head. And if you have clarity on that, you can decide, can't you, whether this is the this is that is a destination that is that's where you want to go. And then you can you can join in, you can play your part, because we don't want this to be, as I said, a uh, a consumer thing we want we want everybody to be engaged the destination matters a lot but it's not just the destination the second lesson on the line was that the the guide the the person you have in the car the help you have in the car matters actually as much maybe even slightly more than the destination because even if you are headed in the wrong direction if you have something or someone in the car who's able to make up for your mistakes then even your mistakes can be turned somehow into an object of teaching, as indeed I am using them for today. And my satellite navigation, Google Maps, or whatever it was I was using at the time, had that capacity. And this misdirection, because of the person, or in fact the technology we had in the car, was able to end up going ultimately to the destination, albeit in a circuitous and roundabout way. The guide matters even more. And the third lesson is that sometimes you need to be flexible on the route. I want to talk to you today particularly about the destination and the guide. And then for the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about the route, the route, if you're American. And I want to say that the first two are not going to change. Our destination, our promised land, is the presence of God. We are headed uh, into, we believe, and we're called into a greater and greater experience and sharing, so it's not just about us, of God and his goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his gentleness and generosity, his presence. The presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit for this city, for us and for this city, that's where we're headed. That's what we believe God has given us to do. That looks like the church on fire and the city alive. That's our destination. It's not going to change. The guide is God. As Will said, the only way we have, the only way it's possible even and i really i realize it's an ambitious aim to see the city coming alive realize realize that's an ambitious thing to see a church on fire and i'm hopefully going to describe what that might look like i understand that there's an ambitious uh, side to that the only possibility of us ever really achieving and reaching that goal is to have the right person along with us well god <laughs> To have God doing his work. To recognize that it's his, it is his work that we're joining him in what he's doing. The route is subject to change. We are going to share the route for the next season. But it may change. It's going to be flexible. We're going to have to roll with it. We're going to have to see what God does and respond. And that's the way it's going to have to be. That's the way uh, I'm excited that it's going to be. So the destination. What do we read Uh, In Exodus 13, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony this month. This is Exodus 13, 5. And here we have the people of God uh, right uh, in the midst of their salvation and their deliverance. And the first thing they need to know is where they're headed. And they're headed for the promised land. And for them, the promised land was always about worship. It was about worship. You know, I had a conversation with a pastor recently, and the pastor said to me, You know, we've been asking the question at our church who are our services for? And I thought that's a great question to ask. And the pastor said to me, you know, are they for the people who are already in the room? And, or are they for people who don't? Are they for people who are searching and seeking for God? And I thought, gosh, that's the sort of age-old question. And the pastor gave their own opinion and, and settled where they wanted to settle. And I just thought to myself, I think you're wrong. Because I don't think the, the services, I don't think the worship is for, for either one of those two categories. Because I think, I think the services, I think the worship's for God. I think the reason we gather here today is for God. And I think when we do that, we all get blessed. If God's in the room, everyone benefits. And you can be somebody here this morning that's brand new to church. In fact, you'd maybe have been dragged here by somebody else. And I just want to say you're really welcome. And welcome for staying this long. Because some of the stuff that we do, if you're not used to it, is really, really weird. But you're welcome here. And, and your best hope... The best hope you have, I think, of of getting something from this experience is if God shows up. Because I've got sort of, generously I might say I've got three sermons. I've actually just got one sermon and I just changed the order of the things that I say. And we've got a few songs we sing. And you'll notice if you stay for a few weeks, we sort of just cycle them around a little bit. But if God's here, something new can happen every time. And if you have been here for If you've been in the church, not this one, but in the church, the community of faith, for generations, literally, your best hope is not a new strategy from us, but the presence, the living presence of God. That's the promised land for us. The promised land is God, more of God and what god has for us we believe that looks like a church on fire a city alive a church on fire i mean <laughs> i wasn't especially encouraged this week when i looked through i got my sort of uh, my <clears throat> my computer bible software and i just typed in fire and almost every reference has to do with judgment and uh, and hellfire it was really quite alarming but there are a few references that speak Of I think the way that we use fire today, passion and and the presence and power of God. You'll think of Acts 2, uh, when God shows up in the room where the disciples are praying together like tongues of fire resting on them. You think of Exodus 3 when Moses is met by a bush in the middle of the desert that's burning. Again, that's not surprising, but it's not being consumed. It's the presence of God, a picture of fire. Fire speaks today of of passion, of, of awakening even. For us here, fire speaks of God's presence. And because it speaks of God's presence, it speaks of transformation. If you dig down to the heart of the message, I believe, of Jesus and the message that you're going to hear consistently from this church, is that we believe that God has the capacity to transform that he is in the business of transforming people and places, that he can transform every life, every heart. He can do it all by himself. Or as my little baby's 3 year olds say, all by his own. He can do it. And that transformation looks different for each of us. For some, it's despairing people receiving hope. For some, it's the disgraced receiving grace some it's the judged receiving mercy some it's the unwell receiving healing the isolated experiencing genuine loving community the pharisees learning authenticity for each of us it's going to be different it's going to be a story for individuals and we've seen stories, stories and stories of people, you guys and us, encountering God in real ways. Somebody sent this story to us just a, maybe a couple months ago now, but I think it's worth sharing again. They said, when I joined Trinity in March, I was struggling with anxiety, which was grief related. I would often stay out of the way, avoiding as many contacts with people as I could. I'm a reasonably confident person, but had to force myself not to find an excuse to avoid church. Going anywhere for any purpose took extreme effort for me. Anywhere new was nearly impossible. God has been working in me every week since March. There's so much of me to change. Amen. About three or so weeks ago, someone gave a call to go forward if you suffered the anxiety so you could be prayed for at the front. So after five minutes of God telling me to move forwards, me saying, no, if you're going to do this, do it at the back of church. I love it. Our bargains with God. I went forwards. Somebody prayed. Nothing dramatic, just a strong but gentle drawing of the Holy Spirit forwards. I felt a sense of something changing. I've noticed that now, so far, things have changed. I do not feel anxious when doing things or going anywhere, well, apart from the dentist. I believe in miracles, too. It's taken a while to share this. I just wanted to make sure it was something that wasn't temporary. Our God is amazing that even cares for little me. He created everything in and on the world, past, now, and future. An Amazing story of God's grace, his kindness. There's nobody that's too small to receive his blessing. There's nobody whose life he's not invested in. Our vision is to see transformation in your lives. My vision is to see it in my life. I want to become more patient. I want to become kinder. I want to be less defensive. I want to be less afraid. I want to be more hopeful. I want to be more imaginative. I want to have bigger dreams, bigger faith. I want to be more faithful. I want to be more open to friendships than I am. I believe this is a story for individuals. But it's not just for individuals, it's for institutions. Imagine what the fire of God would look like in the institutions that touch your life. I in QMC On fire with God's presence. How would the level of care change there? What about City Hospital? What about Trent University? What about the University of Nottingham? What about the halls? Just with a a tangible sense of the manifest presence of God. Wow. What about what about the church? What about the Church of England? set on fire with God's presence again? What about the Catholic church? What about the non-denominational churches? What about hospitals and schools? What about children? What about nurseries? What about every single place, coffee shops, even the streets? Not just institutions, but areas. Imagine your street. You know, there are stories of revival and people just coming into different places and the presence of God being so heavy, they just fell to their knees and began to repent. And that's not just stories of stuff happening in churches. That is in the wide open. I believe that that kind of transformation is possible for us. So what about the guide? I said the guide was as important. Probably said more important, used hyperbole. As important as the destination. The guide is God. We can't get there without God. We are finite. You know, this is going to work best for everyone. If you understand that that our leadership team is just like you. Broken, broken we we have flaws we have massive areas where we just there are things that aren't right in this church that we we we've not even thought about them yet we don't even know they're wrong not not let alone sort of have begun to put together a plan to make them right we're just we're just like you we don't have it all together and we're not about to get it all together that's not our job our job is to keep us focused on where we're headed This is going to work best if we all understand that we're, we're here to pursue God. I remember meeting for coffee with somebody, one of you, a little while ago, and you, you said to me, one of you, one of you said to me, what can I be doing? And I remember my response, and I remember your response to my response, and I remember thinking, that was a good response. And I remember thinking, I've never thought that before, it must have been God. And, and when that person asked me, what, what should I do? I said, the best thing you can do is to pursue God with everything in you. That's the best thing you can do for this church, is to give yourself more fully to God and and to him in your life. That's the greatest contribution you can make. And I believe that will mean uh, a greater investment here, a greater investment in your work, a greater investment in your family, a greater investment across the board, across the city. The guide is God. Unless the Lord builds the house, Those who build it labour in vain. I love the way the psalmist then says it's not just about the house; it's about the city. Unless the uh, the guards guard the city, Lord guards the city. The guards who keep watch keep watch in vain. It is in vain. You get up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, as the NRSV says. For God gives sleep to those He loves. Relax. I've got it, says God. And then it goes on to talk about children. Children are a heritage from the Lord. I believe that for us, those two things are connected, by the way. Children are our heritage here at this church. At the core of it all is God. God is the guide. God is the one who's going to take us forward from this place. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God knows as well, folks. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and, then, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud nor day, by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God is the leader. And if we're going to go anywhere worth going, you'd better stay the leader. And it's our job, all of us, to continue to look to him. He is our guide. He's the one that keeps us on track. And sometimes he takes us the long way around. Because sometimes we need to go the long way around. Somebody said, it's one thing getting Israel out of Egypt. It's a completely different thing getting Egypt out of Israel. The question then that I want to land with is how do we follow the guide? How do we ensure that we're staying on course. How can we stay the course? I want to say three things that we've been saying since the beginning. The first thing is we need to keep a focus on encountering God. I believe in a constantly repeatable experience of God. And I need to qualify that because I don't mean a fuzzy feeling every Sunday. Sometimes God is present even in those moments where he feels most, always God is present even in those moments he feels most absent to us. But I believe there is, uh, and we are to pursue readily and daily encounter with him. I believe that we're not aiming at sort of an arid and distant expression of Christian faith. We're aiming for a real, robust, reliable intimate relationship with God, who, who, who displays himself throughout the scripture as father. Father. And a good father values presence with his children. And for us, that means encountering Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this, let me say it again in another way, the Christ of the Bible is not rightly known until there's an experience of him within the believer. You know, Romans 8 talks about our spirits testify with God's spirit that we're children of God. A, a, an ongoing testimony, you might say. For our Savior and Lord offers Himself to human experience. That is the incarnationism that God becomes one of us, offers Himself to human experience. Genuine Christian experience must always include an encounter. It's not just an encounter, but it must always include an encounter with God Himself. The spiritual giants of old were those who at some time became acutely conscious of the presence of God. They maintained that consciousness for the rest of their lives. That's the way it is for us here. We want to be conscious and aware constantly of the presence of God. That's why we pursue worship. That's why we spend a long time uh, in praise and, and in song to God because we value that. We value creating space for him to move. And I would say the most precious things that have happened here in our gathered environments have not been anything to do with me saying things, or Amy saying things, or Will, or George, or whoever else has been saying things from the front. What tends to happen in my experience is that out of worship, something dynamic happens. And we believe, and we're going to prioritise worship And just this morning, I just sensed this that there's. Worship is a key part of it. The other key part of it for us is because we value encounters, going to be waiting. We're going to continue to wait for God. And again, for some of you who are used to it being dialed in, that might feel a little bit awkward. And I got. Let me just confess. Sometimes I stand here on the platform, and I feel awkward. I'm like, oh, we've been waiting a little while. They think they want to sit down, they're looking bored and I must give them what they want. You know, all that stuff that goes through your head. But we're going to keep waiting. And the third thing we're going to do, and you'll be so pleased to know it begins with W as well. (laughs) We are going to keep weeping. Just think that's something, a grace that's on our church. That there's just going to be, people are going to be moved here. We are moved regularly here. And again, that's a little awkward for me. I don't like necessarily standing up in front of you and crying. But a lot of that's happened. And so we're just going to keep waiting, uh, worshipping, waiting, and weeping. What does encounter look like? I just want to give a couple of examples. Blaise Pascal, some of you have heard of him. He came up with one of the earliest calculators pascalometer or something like that. I did have it written down in my notes, but I've abandoned my notes. There you go. And he he was an amazing guy. By the age of 13, he was proving mathematical theorems. His uh, father recognised early enough that he needed to be, his mother died actually when he was very young. His father recognised early enough that he needed to be homeschooled. (laughs) I love it. Schools are not going to work for you, Blaze. I think I need to take care of this. And so he just sort of gave him Fermat's theorems or whoever it was. This is what we read about Blaise Pascal, the year of grace, from his journal, the year of grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He's only found by the way He's taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He's only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. I've read that. <laughs> You see, Blaze was turned on. He was set. I can't use it. Can I use that pun? I can't. He was set on fire. A blaze. Ah, hate myself. <laughs> he was set on fire by God. It changed his life forever. Nobody knew about that. It wasn't in his journal. Until they found, well, until he died. He died at the age of 39. And when people were going through his pockets, they found that diary entry sewn into his pocket of his jacket. John Wesley. Many of you know about Wesley. He was uh, one of the key leaders in the last revival in England. He was somebody who had uh, struggles in their faith. Way after he was ordained as a a priest, he still struggled. uh, One of his friends said to him, preach faith until you have it. So he'd preach faith in Jesus, uh, all the while not being convinced himself. And he says this in his journal entry, in the evening I went very unwillingly, can I get an amen? (laughs) Very unwillingly to church, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one, was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone. For salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wow. Incredible stories. And this is a cycle of transformation. We, we encounter Jesus. And as we encounter him in worship, in prayer, through community, through conversations over coffee, in sharing lives with one another, in uh, praying with one another, all the stuff that we just, simple stuff, reading the scriptures, and all this really basic stuff we're learning how to do together as we encounter him. We're transformed, we become more like him. And let me tell you, it's not always fireworks. Often it is just, it's, it's, you can't measure it. You see it in retrospect. I look back on my life and I've never had a firework moment with God. But I can't believe the last 15 years. I can't believe where I am now compared to where I was then. The transformation is slow and at times it's glacial. But it's real and Jesus is working in us. As we encounter him, we're changed, we're transformed, we become more like him. And as we become more like him, we become bolder and braver to follow him into the stuff and do the stuff that he did. We pray for people. Where we just, we're just out in the streets and we're just like, I feel the Lord saying, I'm going to pray for that person. Or You're in your workplace and you just, you just sense the Spirit of God urging you to do something, maybe to serve somebody in a new way. And you just feel you're empowered to do it. You share your faith really simply with a friend. You invite somebody to church. You you take a breath before responding in anger. And the Holy Spirit's allowing you and equipping you to do it. Whatever it looks like for you. What's the root? The root is uncertain. We're going to talk for the next few weeks about where we feel God is leading us. But I want to tell you that the root matters far less. Than the God who takes us on the road and who will lead us into the promised land. End with this. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? I want to share one more story <clears throat> as we close. What this meant for somebody means and is meaning for somebody in our community. This is what they sent to me. When I hear people tell their story, the pain they've suffered and the trials they face, I often cry. That's new for me. By the way, this isn't me writing. (laughs) Over the last couple of years, having engaged with some of my own pain, crying has become a daily norm. I often feel something when I hear these stories, but the tears often come because I'm so aware of what I feel. Over the last couple of years, I constantly come back to Moses. Reading the story where he's commanded by God to pick up the snake has really challenged me. When Moses encounters the snake, his instant reaction is to run. I would run. I have run. I do run. But there's a moment in this story that I can't get past. It seems to me Moses has a real moment of decision as he runs. In a split second, he has to address fear. Who does he fear? God or the snake? I want to be more like Moses as the story continues. I think he realizes that if God is asking him to do it, then he doesn't need to fear the snake. And I think what Moses does in this moment is realize who he is, who he, whom he is to fear and the snake becomes a staff. Two years ago, I began therapy. It was one of the hardest and best things I've ever done by a long stretch. It ripped me open somewhat gently. (laughs) It felt like that physically and mentally. Constantly, I was emotionally on edge, having to address my fear, having to look at what had happened and the impact it had on my life. Trauma has had a physical toll, but mentally, the long-term effects in my life have been more crippling. Therapy really helped me with that. I think My therapist was one of the greatest gifts from God. I read a really interesting book by Brené Brown during this process. Helpfully, she talked about being able to engage with two emotions at the same time. I knew that I was riding this wave of joy and excitement, being a part of something so hugely exciting, yet I was crying myself to sleep almost every night in the days after my therapy sessions. Later in Exodus, I love reading about what Moses did. When he leads the people out of slavery to the promised land, there's a moment that catches me and gets me choked up. That same staff from earlier in Exodus, God tells Moses to hold it out over the water. And there we see God take Moses' fear and with his obedience and use it. He uses it not only to save people from slavery, but I think what it does for Moses is also important. I'm not Moses, I can't part seas, I would run away from a snake. But I can be afraid and still allow God to heal and use me. My time at Trinity has been a huge part of that restoration. I think I can now say that because of the encounters I've had with God in the last two years while going through this time of healing and counselling, that what happened to me is a gift, which I'm cautious cautious to say, because that will be very difficult for some to hear. I'm grateful, and I'd want to say it's never too late to heal. Just an amazing story, I think, of courage. The courage to face up to what God is seeking to do in each of our lives. What does this look like for you? It will take courage for all of us to go forward from this moment, but it's an exciting time, and there is good stuff ahead for each of us. Why don't we stand? We're going to pray.